From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Kim Malone Scott is someone I've wanted to talk to for a long time because a lot of people refer me to her work. She is the author most recently of Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. And that's what we're talking about in this episode. Kim led AdSense, YouTube, and DoubleClick Online Sales and Operations at Google and then joined Apple to teach a leadership seminar there. She's been a CEO coach at Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, and a few other tech companies. And prior to her Silicon Valley experiences, she was the co-founder and CEO of Juice Software, which was a collaboration startup. And she led business development at Delta Three and Capital Thinking. Earlier in her career, Kim worked as a senior policy advisor at the FCC, managed a pediatric clinic in Kosovo, started a diamond-cutting factory in Moscow, and was an analyst on the Soviet Companies Fund. She got her MBA from Harvard Business School and her BA from Princeton. She's also the author of three novels. Kim Scott has an amazing background and experience and lots of wisdom which she has boiled down to share with us in this remarkable new book. So now, get set to listen and learn about how to care for and challenge the people who matter to you from Kim Scott. Welcome. Thanks so much for being here, Kim Scott. Thank you so much. I wish everybody could give such a lovely introduction. <laughs> I, was, I was blushing. Well, that's that's kind of you. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled that you're here, and I've been really looking forward to this hour uh, where, where we can learn from what you have discovered. So uh, I want to get right to the chase and then backtrack a bit on, on some of that story of, of how you got to where you are and, and, and how you learned the lessons that you did. But give us, if you can, in just a, a nutshell, the, the core idea in Radical Candor, and then I'll, then I'll ask you some questions about how you got there, and maybe you'll have some questions of me about that, uh, about what it means in the context of the show as well. What's the big idea? So the simple idea of radical candor is that in order to build great relationships at work and really in, in any aspect of your life, you need to be able to do two things. You need to be able to care personally mm-hmm. at the same time that you challenge directly. And when you can do both of those things, that's radical candor. When you challenge without showing you care, that's obnoxious aggression, also known as the a-hole quadrant. Yeah. When you you can say asshole on the show. It's oh, okay. I can. Uh, the FCC has loosened its. <laughs> its this is this uh, is serious XM. That's perfect. We can that's say perfect. whatever the heck we I want. I can say whatever the heck I want. Yes. They say, by the way, I just learned today that there's 
a strong correlation between cursing and honesty. So that's interesting. But that's a, that's another topic. No, so, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. So, so the, the, and by the way, the reason I don't call it the asshole quadrant anymore, yes. the reason why I call it obnoxious aggression is mm-hmm. not, not because I, I object to the, the foul language, but because... I don't want you to use this framework to start writing names in boxes. And as soon as I mm-hmm. that, uh, as soon as I term it that way, you said, so use this framework to guide conversations in a better direction, not to judge yourself or to judge others. Okay, so that's got very that. helpful. Okay. I'm glad you it's, mentioned that. It's important. It's mm-hmm. really important to mm-hmm. me. So, so we've got radical candor. We've got obnoxious aggression. Sometimes we fail on both dimensions at the same time. We neither challenge someone else nor show that we care, and that I call manipulative insincerity. And we love telling stories about political behavior, backstabbing behavior, passive-aggressive behavior, and we also love telling stories about when people have behaved like jerks. However, those two mistakes are not the most common mistake. By far the most common mistake that we make in our conversations at work and, and with all the people in our life is when we do show that we care personally. Most people are actually pretty good, nice people. And we do show that we care personally, and we're so worried about not hurting somebody's feelings that we fail to challenge them directly, that we fail to say what we really think. And that mistake I call ruinous empathy. And and that's what I really wrote the book, to help people overcome as much as anything, because it's such a common mistake. And why do you think it is so common that people are inhibited about uh, challenging those around them, either at work or in other parts of their lives? I think it starts around the time we're 18 months old. And almost everybody had a parent or a caregiver who said some version of them, some version to them of, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. And that's a disaster, especially when you become a leader in any kind of organization. Now it's your job to say it. But when you get married, it's your job to say it to your spouse. When you have children, it's your job to say it to your children. When you make friends, it's your job to say it to your friends. If you care about somebody, if you take a simple example like your fly is down or you got spinach in your teeth, you know you're supposed to say it. And you, you know that it's, it may be awkward, but it's really unkind not to say it. But the same goes of any other mistake that we make. We, we, we rely on the people around us to tell us. And yet, we're so bound by this, this saying that's been pounded in our heads since we learned to speak, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all, that we often fail to do it. Well, like the bard said, you have to be cruel to be kind sometimes, right? <laughs> that's, it's that's, one of my favorite songs, Cruel to be Kind. And, and you know, of course, that's that's from Shakespeare's Macbeth, where he's telling his uh, mother yeah. uh, that he, he needed to be candid with her about what she needed to hear. Yeah. Uh, so, so radical candor. T- tell us why you chose that term to describe this form of exchange and, and how people really need to be more um, confident in being candid? Why well, radical? It, yeah, it's a, good, it's a good question. I call it radical candor because it's rare. Radical mm-hmm. is sort of, it's a fundamental thing, and yet it's a rare thing, which is why I call it radical. And candor because it, it's tempting to think of this as brutal honesty, but brutal honesty is really obnoxious aggression. There's, if you mm-hmm. think about it, 
at some level, radical candor is about love and truth and being able to be loving and truthful at the same time. Hmm. But the problem with the word truth in my book is that if I, if I say to you, I'm going to tell you the truth, I'm kind of implying that I've got a pipeline to God and you don't know shit from Shinola. And that's not really such a great way to start a, start a conversation. So to me, candor sort of implies a more bi-directional uh, statement. So if I say, if I say, I want to be candid with you, I'm, I'm trying to say, I'm going to tell you what I see, but I'm also interested in what you see, how you see the situation. And radical candor, I think, is a gift in two ways. If you share with someone how you see things, either they're going to realize that you see things more clearly than they do, and they're going to adjust, or they're going to understand now that you see things wrong, and they're going to explain to you why you're wrong. <laughs> so you've, you've But got you to really be- want to know if you're smart, right? Yeah, of course. You need to know that. Yeah, you, you do need to know that. You can't possibly fix a problem that you're unaware of. So so this this method of interacting is a way to unearth truths in both directions, truths with a perhaps in, in quotation marks. Yes. I mean, there's look, truth is a good thing. <laughs> and, and you're right. We don't have enough of it in our society right now. But I think truth with some 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 caring and some humility about because there's not one truth with a capital T. We're all sort of wandering around in the dark here, and we've got to help each other see things more clearly. And and that's what I'm really after with, with radical candor. And understand that everybody sees the same thing in different ways based on their biases and perspectives and, and uh, our challenge as leaders, of course, or educators or wherever we are is to try to create a work environment, a social environment where people can feel uh, free, invited to offer their perspective. And from that mix, you get something richer than what you get with any one person operating alone or in, a, in an environment where everyone is silent because they're afraid to speak. Exactly. It's, there's nothing more depleting than seeing a problem and seeing it get repeated over and over again and feeling powerless to fix it. You know, I know that most people listening are now wanting to know, okay, how do I get there? Uh, and and I want to hear your take on that as well. Um, but I, I, I do want to just get a, a bit of the background to how you got to these ideas based on your own experience. So there's, there's a lot in your history that would be fascinating for our listeners to hear about. If you could speak to, like, was there a critical episode or you know, a series of episodes that led you to realize that this was something that you were going to now devote a lot of attention to and that you wanted to bring to others? It, well, I probably started thinking about this in, gosh, in, in 2000. I had mm-hmm. started this software company, so I'm leading a team of about 65 people, and one day I arrive at work, and I got the same article emailed to me from about six or seven different people. And it was an article about how people would rather have a boss who's a total asshole than one who's really nice but incompetent. And I thought, gosh, are they sending me this because they think I'm a jerk or because they think I'm incompetent? <laughs> and I'm not sure which is worse, and surely those are not my two choices. Mm-hmm. And I think that was really... Did you find uh, out like why they sent it to you? Of course you did. But like, uh, of course I did. Yeah, they, th- they thought I was being too nice, actually. Uh-huh. Okay. And, and so... And that was a surprise, because I always thought that nice was such a good attribute. 
mm. in, a, in a human being. And so I, I started thinking about this. I would say one of the, one of the crucial moments for me was, was a simple time when a boss criticized me about something that didn't seem so earth-shattering at the time. I had just started my job at Google, and I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO of the company. And I walked into the room, and there is Sergey Brin, one of the co-founders, mm-hmm. on an elliptical trainer in toe shoes and <laughs> pedaling away. And, and there is Eric Schmidt, who was at the time the CEO, mm-hmm. with his head so deep in his email that I thought it was like his brain had been attached to his computer. And so, like any normal person in this situation, I felt a little bit nervous. I wasn't sure how I was supposed to get their attention. Mm. Luckily for me, the AdSense business was on fire. And when I said how many new customers we had added over the last couple of months, Eric's head pops up out of his computer and he says, what did you say? <laughs> Do you need more engineers? This is incredible. Do you need more marketing? And so, you know, I'm thinking like the meeting went pretty well. In fact, I'm feeling like a genius. And as I left the room, I passed by Cheryl, my boss, Cheryl Sandberg, who was my boss at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm expecting a high five or a pat on the back. And instead she says, why don't you walk back to my office with me? And I thought, oh, boy, I screwed something up. I'm sure I'm about to hear about it. And Cheryl started by telling me about the things that had happened that were, that were good in the meeting, not in the, not in the shit sandwich kind of sense of the word, but mm-hmm. seeming to really mean it and also telling me some stuff I didn't know, but, and, which was all very interesting. But, of course, all I wanted to hear about was what I had screwed up. And eventually Cheryl mm-hmm. said to me, you said I'm a lot in there. Were you aware of it? And now I breathed another huge sigh of relief. If that was all I had done wrong, who really cared? You know, I had a tiger by the tail. And so I made this brush-off gesture with my hand, and I said, yeah, I know, it's a verbal tick. It's no big deal, really. And then Cheryl said to me, I know a great speech coach, and I bet Google would pay for it. Would you like an introduction? And I made this brush-off gesture again. And I said, no, I'm busy. (laughs) Didn't you hear about all those new customers? I don't have time to go be a speech coach. Mm-hmm. And Cheryl stops. She looks at me right in the eye and she said, when you say um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. Now she's got my full attention. And mm. some people would say it was mean of Cheryl to say I sounded stupid, but it was actually the kindest thing she could possibly have done for me at that moment in my career. Cruel to be had, kind. Yes, cruel to be kind. Because if she hadn't said it to me just that way, mm-hmm. I would have kept blowing her off, as she mm-hmm. could tell by my hand gesture. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't have gone to this, see the speech coach, and I wouldn't have realized that she was not exaggerating. I really did say um, every third word. Wow. And th- this was news to me, because I had been giving presentations my whole career. You, you certainly fixed that problem, Kim. Let me just say, obviously you know that, but well, it's a, it's, I can't it's believe a, that. It's a hard story to tell, because some arms will slip out, and okay. I will be hyper aware of Oh, that. no. Now but, everybody's listening. But it won't be every third <laughs> word, I can promise. Okay. <laughs> so so the, the incredible thing was that I had raised millions of dollars giving presentations. I thought I was really good at it. And so this really got me to thinking, what was it that Cheryl did that mm-hmm. made it so seemingly easy for her, but sort of more interestingly, why had nobody else told me? Mm-hmm. Why was it so hard to tell me such a thing? 
And I realized it was really these two things, care personally and challenge directly. I knew that Cheryl cared about me, not just as a human, not just as an employee, but as a human being. But she was never so concerned about my short-term feelings that she wasn't aware, she wasn't willing to tell mm-hmm. me about things I needed to know about for the long term. Yes, Cheryl Sundberg is, is truly an exemplar. I wrote a profile about her in a book that I called Leading the Life You Want, in which I described how these six uh, exemplary leaders uh, in different sectors of uh, society developed the, the, the principles and skills for uh, meaningfully leading in all the different parts of their lives. And uh, this, is, this is a feature of her uh, remarkable uh, skill set that is uh, it's, it's wonderful to hear your story about. So she inspired you, or at least really struck uh, a chord in you to, to, to realize the importance of caring and challenging. Yes, and also, I mean, I think the thing that was, for me, so powerful about that moment is it helped me see how I could change things, how I could mm-hmm. undo mistakes, how I could avoid making mistakes, again, that I had made in the past. I mean, one of the most painful moments in my career was when I, when I, had, I had hired this guy, we'll call him Bob, and this was a few years before the Cheryl incident. And Bob was a great guy. He was smart. He was funny. He was charming. He would do stuff like we were at a manager offsite playing one of those endless get-to-know-you games that nobody dares say this is a total waste of time. And Bob was able to say, hey, look, this is really important, but I've got a different idea, and it's going to be really fast. Whatever it was, we were all ready to do it. <laughs> and, and Bob said, let's just go around the table and confess what candy our parents used when potty training us. Weird, but fast. We did it. And then for the next 10 months, every time there was a tense moment in a meeting, Bob would whip out just the right piece of candy for the right person at the right moment. (laughs) So this is one of the things we liked about Bob. One problem with Bob, just one, he was doing absolutely terrible work. He would hand stuff. Yeah, no, it was awful. That sounds like a big problem. Yes, it was a big problem. He would hand stuff into me, and there was shame in his eyes. Oh. And so he knew it. Yeah, he knew it in his heart of hearts, as as mm-hmm. people almost always do. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to hurt Bob's feelings. I liked Bob, so I would say stuff to him like, "Bob, this is a great start. You're so smart. You're so awesome. Everybody loves working with you." But maybe you could make this a little better. And of course, with that kind of feedback, he never did. And the whole team had to cover for him, redo his work. And after about 10 months of this, the inevitable happened. And I realized that if I didn't fire Bob, I was going to lose half my team. And so I sat down to start the conversation with Bob that I should have started 10 months previously. Mm -hmm. And when I told him where things stood, he sort of pushed the chair back from the table. He looked at me right in the eye and he said, why didn't you tell me? Mm. Yeah. yeah, terrible. As that question is going around in my head with no good answer, he says to me, why didn't anyone tell me? I thought you all cared about me. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, it, takes, a, it takes a caring heart to be able to be uh, candid. Yeah, yeah. Because it's and, hard. Yeah, and so I realized, you, you know, I had screwed up. I had failed to do my job mm-hmm. well. And because I had failed, and I had failed in a lot of different ways, I had failed to solicit feedback from Bob. 
I had failed to to ask him what was going well from his perspective, but mm-hmm. more importantly, what was going badly. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe I was doing something that was driving him so crazy he was forced to toke up in the bathroom. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't ask, and I should have. Mm-hmm. I, I also failed to give him feedback. I failed to give him feedback that that was meaningful. I failed to tell the kind of praise I gave him was really just a head fake. Mm-hmm. And I never told him when his work wasn't nearly good enough. So when you never. say head fake, you mean like vague and general, not specific or dealing well, with real consequences? Well, maybe it was even a lie. Like, Bob, this is a great start. It wasn't a uh, great start. It was mm-hmm. a piece of crap he had handed mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it, I really was not being, I was not being forthright so, with him. I was, his work wasn't nearly good enough and I wasn't telling him. And you were hurting him by not being forthright is what yeah. I infer from what you're saying. Yeah, all I had wanted to do was spare his feelings. I wanted mm-hmm. to be nice, and now I'm firing him. Not so nice after all, right? And and I felt terrible about it. And, and I had made another set of mistakes as well. I had also failed to create the kind of environment on the team in which everyone would tell Bob when his work was really good, what was really great about working with him, and also tell him when he was going off the rails. And because I had failed in all those different ways, Bob is now taking the fall for it. And I think that the emotional impact of that moment is a big part of the reason why I spent so much time writing the book, trying to operationalize what Sheryl Sandberg had done for me. Because all I could do in that moment, it was too late to say Bob. Mm-hmm. Bob, Even Bob realized at this point he should go. All I could do in the moment was make myself a really solemn promise that I would never make that mistake again. What, what are the essentials? I mean, what's, what's the biggest problem that people face in, in, um, in becoming radically candid in a way that creates the environment for positive change? Well, the first thing is that most of us don't solicit enough feedback. Most of us don't really want to know about it when we're making a mistake, and so we try to hide from, from, from it. So I think the first step is solicit both don't solicit praise. Just solicit criticisms. You got to find out how other people think. You got to you got to pull what people really think of your relationship, your work, your behavior. You got to pull it out of them. You don't want to start by giving radical candor. You don't want to dish it out until you prove you can take it. So start by soliciting it. And then the next the next step is to focus on praise. Radical candor is not just about criticism, it's also about praise. There's of a course. lot of good good stuff happening. And if you can if you can focus on the good stuff, then you when you go into the conversations, the the more critical conversations, both you and the other person know that there's a lot there's a lot of of that's positive there. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about a feedback sandwich kind of, you've got to give, you know, X number, mm-hmm. but just focus on the good stuff. And then when you do go in to a conversation where you want to share some critical feedback, you, you want to make sure that you're, you go into it in, a, in, a, in the spirit of humility, that you're humble, you may be wrong, and that you express to the person that you're trying to be helpful, you're not trying to kick them in the shins or mm-hmm. anything like that. You do it right away. Don't let it pile up. You, you want to do it in person, uh, if at all possible. Cheryl would never have known she had to go as far out on the challenge directly dimension of radical candor as she did if she hadn't seen me making that hand gesture, blowing her Great off. Great point. 
Yeah, so, so, you, wanted, so the emotional yeah. signal, uh, the, the verbal language uh, w- wasn't sufficient. It was the body language that really tipped her off that she needed to cut in there. Yeah, put your phone in your pocket and look people in the eyes, please. So uh, just one more quick question here before we break, and that is when you're the boss or the parent, let's say, uh, and you're, you're wanting to solicit your, your first advice, solicit first, uh, how do you, uh, what's your advice for how to, um, how people who are in a hierarchically superior position, how they can make people subordinate to them feel comfortable telling them what they need to say? So I think one of the most important things you can do is just come up with a go-to question. Come up because it's kind of awkward to ask people. And if you if all you do is you say, "Do you have any feedback for me?" I can already tell you what the answer is. Oh no, everything's fine. You're great. So just keep doing what you're <laughs> yeah, doing, Kim. Everything's awesome. So you want to figure out how you're going to ask mm-hmm. that is likely to elicit an answer. Mm-hmm. And everybody wants a formula for this. But these have to be words that can come trippingly off your tongue. These ha- it has to sound authentic to you. So I can give you the question that I liked. The question I liked was, and still do like, still do use, is there anything I could do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? Is a great question for me. However, I was working with Krista Quarles, who's the CEO of OpenTable, and she said, I could never imagine asking that question. The question I like to ask is, tell me why I'm smoking crack. So there's a lot of different Wait, ways. Wait, what? <laughs> tell me why I'm smoking crack. I don't understand that. Tell me why, tell me why I'm wrong. Tell me why oh, this, is oh, okay. a, this is a nutty thing to do. That, that's a euphemism for uh, I, I'm, I've, I'm not seeing things in a, in a rational or realistic way. Gotcha. Exactly. Okay, or got it. Why I'm making a big mistake. Okay. Oh, yeah. So that's <laughs> her style. That smoking crack is a big mistake. <laughs> got it. All right. So what I'm really curious about. Uh, let me ask you, Kim. What is it that people uh, ask you most when you're out there speaking about the stuff and working with clients? What What's the What's the number one question you get? It's really interesting, and it's very, it's very relevant to your show. One of the questions that people most often ask is, how do I try this at home? Or they'll say, if only I had heard this talk five years ago, I wouldn't be divorced right now. And hmm. so the, the question is, does this work for all relationships? And the answer is yes. Uh, so, Kim, um, <clears throat> you were saying that uh, when – when when you run into folks, uh, your talks and, and the organizations that you're working with, many will say to you that uh, they wish they had had access to these ideas and tools earlier in their lives or careers. Um, what's what is it about uh, gaining or retaining your humanity that is essential to this approach? Because that's a part of your title, right? How to be a kick-ass boss without losing your humanity. What do you mean by that? So I think that very often we feel this sort of false dichotomy between saying what we really think and being nice. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true in, a, in, in our relationships, all different relationships. But it's especially true at work if you're a leader of some sort because you sort of feel like you're supposed to have all the answers and that you're not, you know, that you're almost supposed to be kind of a jerk to be effective, which is sort of the the message behind this this article that people sent me early on in my career. Mm-hmm. And 
I think that's just flawed. I think that's incorrect, that you don't have to choose between being a kind human being and challenging people to do the best work of their lives or to build the best relationships of their careers. I think that what you, you can do both. It's not as though we need to choose. Well, you have to do both. Yeah, you have to. Right? You, you can't choose between love and truth. You know, love is not all you need. I love the Beatles, but they got that one wrong. But you need, you need truth also to have a healthy working relationship. And it seems, it seems so simple. I, I was reading a, a review recently, and they said, mm-hmm. on the one hand, it's kind of depressing that simple, such a simple notion makes the New York Times bestseller list. But the truth is that we often forget this, that we, we're, our, our minds, I think, are prone to optimize for one thing, not for two. And remembering that you can be both loving and challenging at the same time, that you can confront somebody when they've done something that is offensive or they've done work that is subpar in a way that helps them improve and that doing so is an act of kindness. Yes. Just remembering that simple thing can be really surprisingly powerful. You know, I bet there's a lot of people listening who can recall an episode like the one you described so poignantly with uh, Sheryl Sandberg about her t- telling you that you sounded stupid to get yeah. your attention and to because you knew she was trying to help you. Yeah, uh, and we've, we've all had those. I bet you've had that moment. I bet every absolutely. single one of your listeners has had a moment. And just pause and think about that. Think about that person who told you that thing that helped you improve some mm-hmm. aspect of your life. It hurt maybe a little bit in the moment to yeah. hear it. But it was so useful that you're great. And call that person up and say thank you. <laughs> you know? I, I have uh, the, the person I'm thinking of. Uh, we, we, have, uh, we have some folks on the line here, I think. Let's see. Uh, Jordan is calling from Denver. Jordan, welcome to Work and Life. What's on your mind? Hi, Stu. Hi, Kim. This is Jordan. I'm, uh, I'm fascinated by the conversation. Thank you for it. I'll pick up the book when I get back to my computer um, I was curious about how to present the candor to someone who is in a fragile state, maybe a state of depression, perhaps. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's such an important question. Thank you for asking it. So one of the things that I like to say about radical candor is that it gets measured not at your mouth, but at the other person's ear. And so when you see someone who is in a fragile state for whatever reason, maybe it's a temporary upset or maybe they're really struggling with something profound, I think that telling them that you, you want to point something out that's broken, but they can fix it. I mean, it's one of the things that Cheryl did for me. I know a great speech coach. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I, Cheryl and I were both lucky at that point. We were working at Google, and there was cash flowing out of the vents. So, yeah. so Google could pay for it. But... But you don't necessarily have to provide a ready-made, paid-for solution. Just telling somebody, this thing could be better, and I'm willing to help you make it better, is, is actually really, it's, it's much more helpful than pretending that things that aren't okay are okay. Even though that person is in a fragile state, mm. they know, they know if there's a problem in their heart of hearts. They know if their work is not good enough, or they're wondering. Mm. If you're saying nothing, then they're wondering. Or if you're giving sort of half-hearted praise the way I was to, p- to poor old Bob, mm-hmm. 
they know. They know it's not quite right, and it can actually be a relief to hear it and to hear that you care enough to tell them. One of the most depressing things in life is to feel invisible. We want to be seen by the people around us, especially by our boss, especially by people who maybe are in some some position of authority. By the way, I don't really like the word boss, and I don't really like the word subordinate. Another important Mm -hmm. thing, that point I make, is try to take hierarchy out of the equation and and replace that with your humanity so you're going to get further faster jordan jordan what do you think about about what yes uh thank you for asking kim what do you think yeah this this is great i'm taking notes in evernote as i uh as i listen i love evernote (laughs) it's a very Um, radically candid organization i do a lot of work with them so so how how are you going to apply that that wisdom jordan how how do you think you can uh, use that it's with a family member, and I think it's it's probably something I have to very delicately um, approach. And the, the first phrase you shared, Kim, is something that's profound for me. It's measured by not my mouth, but by the person's ear, um, and, and maybe even writing it down ahead of time and, and, and thinking through it, or maybe rehearsing it before it comes out. I think those are some things that I'll, I'll work on. Jordan, I think the idea of rehearsing is, thank you for saying that, is so important. Practicing it can, can really help you so much. I mean, the, it's part of the power of improv or just of, of talking it through with somebody else who cares about this person because talking about how they might react can, can really help you prepare yourself mm-hmm. to what are you going to do if they blow you off? How are you going to move further out on the challenge directly dimension, which you might have to do? Or... What are you going to do if the person bursts into tears? That's going to happen. And so just thinking through or gets That's defensive good. or, you know, there's a million emotional reactions. Because when somebody has an emotional reaction, it's your opportunity to climb up on the care personally dimension and to show them not to back off. Don't back off your challenge. It's still a problem. But to, to spend more time explaining to them why you're telling them mm-hmm. because you care because you want to help you want to help them yeah and make sure not to criticize personality i mean the whole point is to change something right and it's really hard to change your personality so so use simple techniques like situation behavior impact when you do this you know in this situation when you do this behavior it has this impact cuz people can change their behavior but they can't really change their personalities. Jordan, um, I hope that was helpful uh, and that, Thank you. you know, we didn't get to this in Jordan's case, but where we were just kind of approaching the, the idea that you have to approach these conversations as someone willing to help, that that yeah. was the message that came through in that origin story you told about Cheryl telling you that you sounded stupid. You knew that she was trying to help you. Um, Often, though, the underlying motivation is one of, you know, resentment or like, you're really creating difficulties for me and I don't really care about trying to help you. I just want you to stop, damn it. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you do in that circumstance? Yeah, this is something I work with a lot of, 
a lot of organizations have something called technical debt, where they've made a lot of little sort of sloppy technical decisions, and now they got a big gnarly problem. But I think even more than technical debt, a lot of companies and also personal relationships have what I call feedback debt, where hmm. we haven't said something, we haven't said something, usually because we care. We've, we're, we've been ruinously empathetic for a long time, and now we're furious. We're just furious. Because it builds up. Yeah, it builds up, and then, you know, you're, you're ready to move into obnoxious aggression. You're ready just to yell at the person. And so the question is, how do you solve the problem of feedback debt? And I think the way you solve that problem when you're at the bursting point is to take a step back and, and begin by soliciting feedback. Ask the other person. Try it. Because what you want to do is you want to understand the world from their perspective a little mm-hmm, bit, mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're able to do this. This can be hard when you're at the bursting point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you have the, you know, radical candor is fast and it's free, but it takes enormous emotional discipline, So, which most of us are short of. I know I certainly am a lot of the time. So if you can do that sincerely, ask first, and then that's part of the reason why it's good to focus on the good stuff. Remind yourself about all the things that you like about this person and give voice to them. Mm-hmm. It is so important for people to hear what others appreciate about them because we often don't even know it. And so be specific and sincere in your praise. Just offering a bunch of insincere good jobs is not going to help. That's specificity. You get the point, not going to help the other person feel any better. The specificity is really crucial. Uh, yeah, for both praise and criticism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So understanding the world from their perspective, you, you were saying, requires a kind of emotional discipline. Could you say a little bit more about what that means and how, well, you, how you build it over time? Yeah, yeah. I think that to be radically candid, you need to be both self-aware and relationally aware. So you need to be aware of what's going on in your own head you need to be aware of your own motivations. Like you're saying, when you're at the bursting point, you're, you are going in to kick the person's shins. You're not going in to be helpful, actually. Mm-hmm. And so you need to be aware of that. But you also, even, even once you have sort of gotten your own motivations uh, under, under control, under management, now you've got to be aware of how your words are impacting the other person. You may go in with every good intention in the world, truly and genuinely desiring to help the other person, but they may not be able to hear it for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And again, I'll, I said it before, but it's worth repeating. Go on. This stuff gets measured not at your mouth, but at the other person's ear. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to be, that's what I mean by relationally aware. And so you've got to say it different for different people and different in different cultures. And so it's important to keep in mind, isn't it, to to remind yourself and and persistently remind yourself, especially if what you're conveying is is out of both caring and rage, you know, simultaneously, yeah. why this person matters, yeah. and and why you care about them, and why you're wanting to speak with them. I think that. Uh, to, to have that in the forefront of your consciousness as you, you know, get set to engage in a conversation like this would seem to be really important. Yeah, I think you're exactly right about that. Now, I'll say something else that's maybe a little bit controversial. It sometimes mm-hmm. gets me into trouble, but I think it's true. 
when you are at that point of rage, it is better. It is If you don't have the wherewithal to move towards radical candor, it's actually better just to give vent to your obnoxious aggression than to stay silent and be either ruinously empathetic or manip- more likely when you're in a hmm. state of rage, you're manipulatively insincere. Because when you are... When you are being manipulatively insincere, when you are just not saying something because you're afraid of how the other person is going to react, you're, you're, you're going to, you're, your anger at the person, your dislike of the other person is only going to intensify. And so if you, if mm-hmm. you can move, if you have to, just go ahead and just say it. Just say it. Well, that's like that's consistent with what you were saying earlier about how people would prefer to work for an asshole than for somebody who doesn't, you know, who's incompetent and doesn't know how to tell them the truth. Yeah, I mean, if there's a problem, you you'd rather know about it. I, I heard a story once about a guy, and his wife would click the spoon against her teeth when she ate her cereal in the morning, and it oh bugged my gosh. him. But he didn't want to be he didn't want to be petty or whatever, so he didn't say anything. He didn't say anything for like five years, and at this point, he was so at the boiling point he was ready to leave her because of this. Well, <laughs> yeah, uh, and it's kind of ridiculous, but this stuff happens. This stuff happens. I mean, obviously there are other problems in the relationship, yes. but maybe not helped by the fact that he started every morning pissed hmm. off at his wife for clicking the spoon on her teeth, and she had no idea. So how did he address that, or how should he have addressed that, Kim? Well, he should have told her in the first place, and she probably could have broken that habit if it was driving that crazy. If, if she cared to do so. Yeah, yeah. But at least, you know, at least he would know. Like, she cares enough to try to stop doing that because even though it may not be totally rational, this is a bugaboo of mine. Or, you know, she, she wouldn't. But if she wouldn't, then he, you know, then he would have learned something. And he wouldn't have been mad at himself for not telling mm. her. You know, we get in these, it's in these that, vicious cycles. The pent-up rage that yeah. uh, you, you want to burst that dam, right? You you want to let it get out there. If not for your own sake, then for the sake of the person with whom you are, uh, you know, in, in relationship and 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 uh, needs to hear it. So you're yeah. so you're arguing better to be obnoxiously uh, aggressive than to be. Um, silent. Manipulatively insincere, yeah. Hmm. So, well, what's the controversy about that, in brief? Well, or, I What's once the pushback said, that you get? I once said, if you can't be radically candid, the second best thing you can do is be an asshole. And that got tweeted out of context. Oh, but now we <laughs> um, get it. But but it's actually true. I, I think mm-hmm. I, I stand by that statement, even though it was tweeted out of context. Yeah, I see that. All right. Well, we're nearing the end of our time together. I feel like we're just getting started here. I, there's there's another question I want to ask you, though, that I think we do have another minute or so for. And that's a question I'm, I'm trying to bring into the show with everyone who, uh, who joins me in conversation uh, in 2018, uh, because I think it's something that uh, we just need more of. And I know you're going to have some, some wisdom about this. Uh, and it's, it's the idea of compassion. Yeah. So um, I'm curious to know how you bring compassion into your work and into your life. One of the most important things I think we can do is remember to put all our devices away, shut our computers, put our phones in our pocket, and just see people in the moment, these little simple moments of, of compassion of, oh, I can see your 
upset about the way that presentation went. How can I help? I, if you just see other people's emotions and offer to help, it can make a world of difference. It's such a simple way to show that you care. I remember one time I was on the street in Manhattan and walking my puppy, who I adored, who was out of control, who almost got hit by a car. And this man looked at me and he said, I can see you really love that dog. That's hmm. all he had to do to show compassion. didn't take long at all. And then he said to me, but if you don't teach the dog to sit, you're going to kill the dog. <laughs> and, then, and then he pointed at the ground and he said, sit. The dog sat. I had no idea the dog even knew what that meant. And he, wow. I looked at him in amazement, and he said, it's not mean, it's clear. Hmm. And so if you can take the, those moments to say, I can see, and just see the people who are around you as human beings and not as sort of means to an end, it'll make a world of difference. And how do you remember to do that when, you know, in the hurly-burly of uh, our, you know, continually distracted and high-stress, overwhelmed lives, what, what advice do you have for people to keep that in their consciousness? I think several things. One is to prioritize the people who are in front of your face instead of the people who are behind your screen. It's, hmm. it's just so important when you're physically with someone to be with them, not to forget to do that. And don't, if you're having coffee with somebody, just do not take your phone out of your pocket. Do whatever it takes to, to remember to see the people in front of you, to be present for the people who you're actually interacting with. Uh, another really simple tip is just don't schedule meetings back to back to back. If you can have 30-minute be meetings be 25 minutes mm -hmm. and hour-long meetings be... 50 minutes or just not schedule another meeting for another half an hour, then you're much more, you're, you're much less frenetic. I had, a, I had a colleague who used to religiously cancel at least one meeting every morning. He'd come in, look at his calendar, and decide which was the least important. He would, because he didn't have time mm -hmm. to, to focus on being present if he was so overscheduled. So I think, I think, Managing our addictive devices better is important, and mm -hmm. managing our tendency to feel like we're getting more done if we overschedule ourselves is really important. Very getting helpful. enough sleep is also important. Ah, yes, that's a topic we 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 return to regularly on the show, Kim. We are we are out of time, I'm afraid. How can people find out more about your your remarkable work and uh, books, etc.? Oh, thank you. Uh, RadicalCandor.com is the website. You can, you can buy the book in any bookstore or on Amazon or wherever you like to buy books. And you can follow me on at Kimball Scott or at Candor. Awesome. Kim, thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kim Malone Scott about radical candor and that you learned some things that you can use. So now... Here is a challenge to you, an invitation. Why not try practicing your skills at being radically candid? And here's what I mean. Think of someone to whom you owe some feedback, someone you want to try to help. 
but that you've got to challenge them at the same time. You've got to push them a little further than where they are right now. Practice on your own talking to this person in a way that clearly demonstrates in specific terms that you care about them and that you want to push them a little further. So you don't want to be ruinously empathetic, just being nice, and you don't want to be obnoxiously aggressive, just being pushy. You want to be lovingly candid. How can you do that with this person in a way that they feel both cared for and challenged? could be a friend, could be a family member, somebody at work, anyone. You can never be too good at this skill. And so here's another opportunity for you to practice and then see what happens. What do you discover from intentionally, consciously, mindfully trying to improve this relationship and improve the performance of this other person by being radically candid? And if you do this, get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you and to discover from you what you learned from trying. You can write to me, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu or on Twitter, at Stu Friedman. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.